in the middle of a series. This is a Bible-based series, as our pastor would want you to know, but the Bible-based series is taking a bit of a step back. I am a Christian, and I my name is Mark Lanier. If you don't know me, it's a pleasure to meet you, albeit uh, weird uh, to meet you in this sense, but but I am a, a Christian by faith, and uh, I am teaching a series right now in here, Why I Am Not. Why have I chosen Christianity to invest in and, and to put my faith in? Why is it the focus of my life? Why do I believe it to be the real explanation of the way the world is, the way you are, and the way I am? And I'm explaining why I believe that to be the Judeo-Christian view of God as opposed to the view of God or no God that comes from other places. So we looked why I'm not an atheist, and I spent two weeks on that, and that's available in the Internet if you want to look at it. I had a friend who gave two weeks on why he's not a Buddhist, and I can relate to what he said, and so I uh, ascribe to, to his reasons for not being a Buddhist. They're the same reasons for me, albeit I might word them a bit differently. And then I started why I'm not an agnostic. And if we open the door to agnosticism, we know agnosticism are people who say, I don't know if there's a God or not. I don't believe that there is a God, but I'm not going to stomp up and down and say, absolutely, there is no God. It's just my belief system. So I don't think there's a God, but hey, I could be wrong. Those people who hold that perspective I hope will be in our class or watch this off the internet and engage with me on some level. Because I've given serious thought to that over the, uh, well, not all 55 years of my life, but uh, I didn't know about it probably for the first 15 or so years. But I can tell you since high school, I've been examining and debating these issues within my own brain, talking to everyone I can about them, trying to be authentic and live a, war, a life that's based on the reality of this world. I don't want to be a Christian simply because my mom, and God bless my mom, a holy Christian woman who brought us up to, to believe in the Lord, but always told us to believe because of what we determined to be right, and not simply what we inherited from mom and dad. I don't want to be a Christian just because my parents were. I don't want my children to be Christians just because Becky and I are. I, I don't see God having grandchildren. God has children. And so I want to connect to God myself if he's really there. And if he's not there, I don't want to live some fake trumped up life. So it's a very serious issue for me and has been. And, and it's one where I want to share with you why I'm not an agnostic. Why, after looking at this, I can't go there. Now, Dr. Bob is not here today. Dr. Bob is, uh, uh, usually sits right over here with Kelly. And uh, there are more donuts today because Dr. Bob is not here today. He gets them for Kelly and then eats them for Kelly. Um, but Dr. Bob's a dear friend of mine, and for the last, oh, I don't know, 23, 23 years, Bob has been part of my right hand on trying lawsuits. 
Bob, Dr. Bob is a lawyer, but he's also a Ph.D. psychologist, which is why we call him Dr. Bob. And Dr. Bob's job is to try to figure out who's going to be a good juror or a bad juror and how we can deliver the message in a way that makes sense for the jury. So he's, he thinks in, in, in those terms, and he's got certain tools at his disposal. One of the tools we do are focus groups. It's where you get a group of people, you figure out who they are, and then you present ideas and, and themes and theories to them to see how they react. Another thing we do are mock trials, where we do a, a short one- or two-day trial as opposed to a two- or three-month trial to present to a mock jury or two and try to see what's there. What we're trying to do is we're trying to figure out the American trial system works if we get a non-biased jury that pays attention to evidence. Now, it may not always vote for me, but I may not always be right. I try to be, but the jury system works. The key to the jury system working, though, the key is you've got to have a, a jury that's not biased or that's not letting their bias affect their decision. All of us have some degree of bias and prejudice and mindsets, but you've got to be able to set them aside. So much so that in Texas, like every other place I've tried cases all over the U.S., the Texas Supreme Court, the number one instruction for a jury, do not let bias, prejudice, or sympathy play any part in your decision. Now, you see, I bring this up because we're looking at evidence. What I'm going to do is present you evidence as if you were on a jury so that you can try to derive some truthful uh, decisions to base your life upon so that you walk in reality. There are some people who are so adamantly against the idea of there being a God that it doesn't matter what the evidence is. They're going to explain it away or they're going to find a way to question it. Because they've got a deep-seated bias or previously held belief that they're not going to part from. I'm not going to be able to persuade those people, and neither are you. That's the view that they hold, and it's such a deep-seated bias that it doesn't matter what the evidence is, they're not able to give it a fair hearing. I got news for you. There's another group of people who are going to believe in God. It doesn't matter what you put in front of them, what the evidence looks like. They've experienced God. They know God. They believe in God. And nothing's going to move them. And that's fine. In fact, that's marvelous because I believe that they're walking in reality. But it, 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 they would not be qualified to sit on a jury to assess the evidence. Because they've made their decision regardless of what evidence there may be. But in between those two camps are 90% of us who say, I would like to be well-reasoned and informed and living in a good, 
reality that's intellectually honest. It makes me cringe when I watch TV, or it makes me cringe when I'm around people who think that a Bible-believing Christian must be an idiot. Because I, I, I don't see that. I'm not a Bible-believing Christian because I put on a blindfold and decided willy-nilly pell-mell to jump off a cliff. I did not take a blind leap of faith. I'm a Christian because it makes more sense to me than anything else. It's what explains to me the world. It explains you. It explains me. It explains how I feel. It explains how I live. It explains why some of us are sick. It explains why some of us aren't. It explains why some of us are holy. It explains why some of us are thieves. (laughs) So I'm trying to figure that out. And what I'm putting together in this class is basically a request for you like a fair jury to weigh the evidence. Set aside your bias and your preconceived notions. And just look at the evidence and use common sense. Use your reasoning that either God gave you or you lucked into, depending upon your worldview. But use it. And so the different areas of evidence that I think need to go into the scales, it's either this is evidence there's a God or evidence there's not a God, include why is there objective right and wrong? Why is there beauty? Why is justice and fair important? Why is there a basis for dignity and honor? Why do we uniquely value humanity? Why is there meaning and significance in life? Why do my actions fail to meet my standards? Why is there suffering? Why can't we see God? Why do some of our prayers seem unanswered? How does God mesh with science? Making sense of the cosmos. Sorry, it's down on the bottom somewhere. Making sense of the cosmos. These are very real questions. And and I think when I weigh all of these, uh, uh, spoiler alert, when I weigh all of these, I can't be an agnostic. The weight of the evidence is overwhelming in favor of the Judeo-Christian teaching about God. And so that's what we've done. So we've already looked at why is there objective right and wrong. And it took me two weeks to do it. I'm sorry, I'm going to try and move a little better this week. But this week, all we're getting to... Oh, by the way, that goes in the evidence for God category. That there is object. Now, if you don't believe there's objective right and wrong, and I've been emailing with a gentleman who comes to this class, says, I don't believe there's objective right and wrong. I think he does in his heart. He doesn't. That's fine. That may not be evidence for him. But if you believe there's objective right and wrong, you cannot get there without there being some object that makes it right and wrong. And God is that. So today, why is there beauty? And why is justice and fair important? Those are our two that we're going to look at today. Now, beauty, this is an argument for the existence of God that many people use. I want to warn you right now, and some of you are going to be very upset with me, and the line to see me after class may be very long, and I may skip out. 
I've already gotten an email from my buddy Greg. Says, I right, look, man, now don't miss this boat. Because he's had a chance to read the lesson. You may disagree with me on this. I'm just being honest. I've read C.S. Lewis on it. I've read Swinburne on it. I've read a number of different Christians who believe that the idea of beauty is proof of the existence of God. I just, to me, when I suss out all the arguments, I don't get it. I don't see that as an argument for the existence of God. I don't think it means he doesn't exist. I think God is beautiful. I do think beauty exists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I just don't see it as affecting this argument one way or the other. So I don't put it in the scales on either side. Let me just tell you what the argument is, because you may disagree with me. First of all, why is there beauty, which does not need to be on that slide background? There you go. Why is there beauty? Does this prove the existence of God? Some people say the randomness of evolution should produce ugliness. That's one of the arguments, that we have beauty, but evolution should be random, so random that it would produce an ugliness, not this beauty. Some people say that beauty is objective. There is some objective idea of what beautiful is, so something's got to define beauty, much like we said about morality. This has been around, here's a shocker for you. If you don't read philosophy, you may not be in on this. This has been debated for thousands of years. There are people whose lives have been spent on the academic pursuit of answering the question of what is beauty. St. Augustine, 354 In our era, after Jesus, 354 to 430 A.D., here's what he said. Physical beauty can be appreciated only by the mind. Now, this would be impossible if this idea of beauty were not found in the mind in a more perfect form. That's kind of hard to understand. Just work with him here. What he's saying is, the idea that we have of beauty in our mind, we couldn't have that idea unless there was something outside of our mind that was even more beautiful than what we can think of. Because we're only able to think of part of it. So he says, even here, if this idea of beauty were not subject to change, one person would not be a better judge of sensible beauty than another. This consideration has readily persuaded men of ability and learning, women as well, that the original idea is not to be found in this sphere where it's shown to be subject to change. Here's what he's saying. Beauty is something that exists outside of us. We just are learning it and debating it and trying to figure it out. And we change our perspective on what it is because beauty exists outside of us. And because beauty exists outside of us, Augustine said, there must be something outside of us that defines what that beauty is, and that would be God. Now, Augustine says, they saw there must be some being in which the original form of beauty resides. That would be God. That's unchangeable, incomparable. And they rightly believe that it is there that the origin of things is to be found. 
So that's where it comes from. So there's a beautiful God, and that's what's made the world beautiful. I believe Augustine is correct that there's a beautiful God, and that's made this world beautiful. But I don't think that we get there logically in a way to prove that this God is there. Here's what I mean. The randomness of evolution should produce ugliness. I'm sorry, that that's that sounds right, but it's in Latin a non sequitur. It doesn't make sense. I mean, I've got peacocks. Truly, we have pet peacocks. And I had to get rid of one of our males because the other male's tail plumage feathers were so spectacular that all of the females wanted him. (laughs) And my poor little non-spectacular male was leading a very dejected peacock life. So I sent him and one of the females to Stephenville, Texas, where I'm sure he's in peacock heaven. But what happens is all of the successive generations of little peafowl, that's what they're called, all of those successive generations are going to be like mama and daddy in some ways because that's where they got their genes from. And mama's not picking the ugly daddy generally. She's picking the pretty one. So the idea that natural selection is going to produce the ugly duckling is not necessarily logical. And I don't want to get into a debate with my friends over this because it's not a winning position. Look, I got tons of good reasons to believe in the existence of God. I don't need to stand in with these reasons that frankly aren't that good. It just makes me, you know, we don't, we don't have to hold on to every little argument. So next, beauty is objective. So there must be something that defines beauty. Well, this is a pretty tough thing to sell. One of the key questions is, is beauty subjective I mean, or objective? Is there really something outside of humanity that, that is beauty itself and then we're just all learning what it is? Well, if you look at this debate historically, you will find in history that you can look at some things that are beautiful and not beautiful. Well, look, let's do it first with us. Okay, <clears throat> sunset over the ocean, or sunrise over the ocean. It works both ways. Is it beautiful or not beautiful? How many say beautiful? Raise your hand. Do you know what? I predicted that. (laughs) My and Becky's only granddaughter. Such a little sweetie pie. Two months old yesterday. Lives in Oxford, England, two months old. I've already been to see her four times. (laughs) Pathetic, huh? Beautiful or not beautiful? An infant baby, of course beautiful. I knew you were going to say that. I already did it. The Mona Lisa. Everybody. 
Beautiful. Um, look, box toccata in D major. See if we've got some of it. Is it playing? Not playing. Maybe. Let's try it again. Bam. Now, it may not be your taste, but everybody agrees it's got beauty. Okay. Move it over to the beautiful. A ballerina danced Swan Lake. I mean, now, please understand, I don't like ballet. I, I would rather watch World Wrestling Federation than ballet. I think there's a beauty in the Texas Tombstone Pile Driver. But for those, I, I still got to admit, there's beauty in, 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 in the artistic expression of ballet. Now, gray cinder block jail cell. How many people think that's beautiful? I knew it. So does that mean there's objective beauty because everybody got certain things that they agree are beautiful? Well, I don't think so. It goes back to the peacock analogy. Here's, here's the history. Ancient Greeks, by and large, thought beauty was objective. It was a form. It was something that was outside of us. And we just needed to, we could debate it, we could argue about it, and we could decide, is this beautiful or is that beautiful? Well, the human form's beautiful. Symmetry's beautiful. Math is beautiful. What's beautiful? How do we define it? Da-da-da-da-da. And uh, Augustine, as we already said, thought it was objective. And then all of a sudden, along comes David Hume, a Scottish philosopher in the 1700s. And David Hume writes on this, and he says, nah, it's not objective. What one person thinks is beautiful, another one doesn't. We even have a saying that comes from this. Our saying is, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Subjective. It's what I think. One person's cretin is another person's love interest. Here's the way Hume said, beauty is no quality in things themselves. It exists merely in the mind that contemplates them. Each mind perceives a different beauty. One person may even perceive deformity, where another is a sense of beauty. Every individual ought to acquiesce in his own sentiment without pretending to regulate those of others. Now, here's the deal. Why is there beauty? As a Christian, I know why we have a beautiful God who created things of beauty that have been marred by sin and degradation and a fallen world, but still inherently have beauty within them because of their creator. But even though I believe that to be true, it's not a compelling argument for me because I can make the argument from natural selection without there being a God that says we've just bred the, within ourselves uh, this common recognition of what is beautiful. You know, if, if, if it, it, it's like any other matter of taste. If the birds breed, if the birds that eat the purple beetles breed more than the birds that eat the brown beetles then all the purple beetles are going to get eaten up and you're going to have a bunch of brown beetles. Because that's the taste of the bird. I, now, 
All I'm saying is, to me, this isn't a compelling argument. It's not worth making. I look at it, and I think there's a credibility enhancer if we can look at an argument and say, hey, I I, I see the truth of it, but I'm not going to go there with that argument. I don't think that's the winning argument for me. I look at it. I don't put it in the scales. It doesn't weigh against God. It doesn't weigh for God. I just don't see it proving the existence of God in spite of what some very good people have written. I may be wrong if I am. Sue me. Okay. Next. Stephen Fry. Cambridge educated. Smart dude. Author. Actor. British accent. Makes him sound intelligent, regardless of what he's saying. He was uh, interviewed in The Blaze. He's an outspoken atheist. He was asked, what would you say to God after death? You're there at the pearly gates and you realize it's all true. There really is a God. You were wrong. What, Stephen Fry, would you say to God? Here was his answer. I'd say... Bone cancer in children, what's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world to which there's such misery that it's not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I would say. Then he was asked, do you think that would endear you to God when you said that? Here's his reply. The host of Big Taken Aback asked, and you think you're going to get in like that? No, but I wouldn't want to, Fry countered. I wouldn't want to get in on his terms. They are wrong. Now, I want to tell you something. I think Stephen Fry has made some statements that are worthy of examination. And I think he's made some challenges that are worthy of thoughtful consideration and response. As we continue to work through this, I think I'm probably about two or three weeks away, two weeks away, I hope, from where I say, okay, why is there bone cancer in children? And we will look at suffering. Does that fit under a God model or not? And that will be examined. But what I want to start with today, look at some of these words that Cambridge-educated author and actor and thoughtful person Stephen Fry uses. He says, how dare you create a world where there's such misery, that is not our fault. It's not fair. How dare you, God, make a world that's not fair? Look at this. So full of injustice. How dare you make a world with injustice? These are important terms to him. It's deeply ingrained in him, this idea of fairness and justice. 
Where did that come from, Stephen Fry? That's my question. Where does your idea of justice being laudable, achievable, important, a virtue, something worthy of good and, and pursuit, where does this come from? Where does this idea that things ought to be fair come from? Why are you even using those words? Have you examined what you're saying? If there's no God, I mean, who gives a rip? But something has made deep within Stephen Fry and others realize there is a virtue and, and, and justice it's a pursuit, it's worthy, it's a goal. And if there's not justice, there's a problem. Because justice is something we should achieve. So where does this come from? The Judeo-Christian view says God hardwired it into your brain. The Jewish scriptures and the Christian scriptures say that God has created humanity in His image and that this God is a just God. That He loves justice. That he wants us to pursue justice. That he'll bring down kingdoms if they are unjust. That he sets up laws. You go back to the laws of Moses. Immigrants are treated justly by Israel. The, the, the justice is a reflection of a just and moral God. So the Judeo-Christian view says, yes, Stephen Fry... I'm not surprised to hear you say, "There's this, this, it's not fair. It's not our fault. This is unjust. Because you're using our Christian terms. You're using our Jewish terms. You're using the terms we get from the Jewish Christian scriptures. That's the, And yeah, it eats at you because you were made to care about such things. Now, are we to believe that natural selection gives us this keen sense of justice and fairness? I don't get there. I mean, natural selection itself is a concept, a scientific concept. There's certainly validity in it, and we can see some aspects of it. But 99.9% .9 of it is what, in logic and science, we would call post hoc analysis. It's backwards engineering. You've already come up with your conclusion of what you want proven. You just got to figure out how to get there. But you can even use the post hoc analysis. And I'm sorry. I just don't see. Look, we say, oh, no, here's the way it worked. Natural selection. Humans figured out that they will proceed a lot better as a society, as individuals, if they're in a society that is just and fair. And so it's a very personal thing. I'll thrive better if it's a fair society, so I have to be fair so that others will be fair to me, unlike the ocean, where it's not, um, I had the last meal, Brother Shark. Why don't you eat this meal? It's only fair we share the poor little walrus amongst ourselves. No, no, no. Stephen, look, we're, we're not inherently fair people. We like to give lip service to it because it sounds so noble. But how many of us are truly taking what we have and following the teachings of Jesus who said, 
to love your neighbor as yourself. How many of us are truly, you know, Stephen Fry, I'm so glad he's tuned in to children and bone cancer. How much of his income has he given to the children who have bone cancer that will die from it simply because they don't have medical treatment? Oh, you in the UK, you have uh, national health insurance. Fine. But there are children with bone cancer outside the UK. Does he really care that much about fairness and justice? Is he really interested in trying to make life fair for everyone? No, not inherently. Very few people are. And so I put this in the scales. And the Judeo-Christian view helps me understand Why is justice important? Why is fair important? From a Judeo-Christian perspective, it's easy. God is just. God expects us to treat people fairly and justly. He's told us to. He's hardwired us to. When we do it, we say, what a marvelous thing. When we see injustice, we roil within ourselves. We abhor injustice. If we see injustice, we try to play reality amoeba, where we reshape it into something that's not unjust because it just makes us cringe. How would you like to be on a jury? Where I was able to say to you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, do not do the right thing. Let's use our power to wreak an enormous injustice in society. You'll go home and you'll be proud. You'll say, yes, I was the one who caused this horrible injustice. No, I'll never win a trial that way. I've got to appeal to the jury because they're everybody. Juries are every people. I've got to appeal to them. This is the just result. You do the just thing, even if it goes against what you want to do. If you see it as the just thing, you do it. And the juries will respond because we admire justice, even though we don't always walk in it. The Judeo-Christian view says we were made to be like God, but we're fallen, and so we're inadequate. So yes, justice is important to us and justice is fair to us, but it's something we have to strive to do. Even though it's hardwired into our brains, it doesn't always come natural. But it is hardwired into our brains. It's not something that we get culturally. I promise you, there's not a four-year-old kid I've ever seen that at some point in time doesn't say, that's not fair. It happens at a real early age because it's hardwired. So, I put it in the scales. I think it makes sense with the Judeo-Christian God much more so than the idea that we're just a sack of chemicals with electrical impulses going on in our neurons and synapses and nothing more. So, we'll look next week, by the way, I want to look at, we're going to cover why is there a basis for dignity and honor and why do we uniquely value humanity 
and why is there meaning and significance of life? Those three are our goals next week. Be thinking about that, and let me give you your points for home. Point for home one. Abraham was confronted with the fact God was going to demolish Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham had a nephew, Lot, and his family in Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham said, uh, God, are you really going to destroy this entire two towns just because some people are unrighteous? If I go and find enough righteous people, come on. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? God says, you bet I will. You go find those people. And Abraham goes down and he can't find them. The, the, the towns are, are cesspools of perversions and, and, and of uh, violence and, and inhumanity, uh, demanding uh, 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 rape victims. And, and, and I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a horrific situation. So Lot and his family leave and Abraham leaves. But God is a just God, and it's taught from the earliest parts of our scriptures, the Jewish scriptures. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? You know, in, if we go from the beginning of the Jewish scriptures to the end, there's a prophet Micah. And in the sixth chapter, the eighth verse, Micah asks this question. What does the Lord require of you? You know the answer? Number one, to do justice. Love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Justice is one of God's requirements for his followers. That we even, that Stephen Fry uses that word, such injustice. It should not bother him if we're just sharks swimming in a sea. It doesn't bother the shark. That it bothers him ought to tell him something about his brain. And the way he's made. Point for home number two. One thing I have asked of the Lord. That I will seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord. All the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. To inquire in his temple. God is beautiful. Greg's got that. Greg. The triune God. We don't understand him without understanding that beauty. There's a beauty and and he's given us that. I don't want to take away from the beauty of the Lord. Because you can't understand the richness of this life without it. But I don't use that to persuade me that God exists. It does teach me about God. So beholding the beauty of God is a worthy pursuit. It's just not my reason I'm not an agnostic, I guess. And then finally, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. But do it with gentleness and do it with respect. These are important questions we're talking about in here. These are questions that we need to think about. These are questions that need honest answers. We should be honest with ourselves so that we can be honest with the world. But we don't need to ignore these questions. These are important questions. They are explaining why the world is the way it is, why you are the way you are, why I am the way I am. It explains reality better than anything else. Dale, square peg, round hole. Let me say a blessing over you, please. Father,
In your name, I, I ask your blessings on those who are in here today. Friends, family, fellowship, would you please bless them, Father? Stir up in their hearts a desire to know you, not, 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 not in some iffy way, but in a very real way. To see the explanation for the world around us in a way where, where scales fall off of our eyes and we begin to understand and, and glimpse the beauty that you've made. Not just in the inanimate things, but in us and in this life. I pray that blessing in your name, Father. Amen.